Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 74 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending October 27, 2017, the Coming Home Tied One-to-One Edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the top compliance and ethics-related stories for this week, including uh, Wei Chen's commentary on the failings of ISO 37001 and Christy Grant Hart's response in the FCPA blog. Jay talks about the uh, speech by DOJ uh, Assistant Attorney General Rod Rosenstein about the DOJ Working Group to Boost Corporate Cooperation. We discuss an article by Ben D. Pietrail in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Report about what is a compliance contagion. Uh, Jay walks us through how IBM uses big data in its FCPA compliance program. I talk about the uh, Transparency International UK's new online tool to provide businesses with practical and in-depth guidance on tackling bribery and corruption. We take a look at a blog post by our friend and colleague Matt Kelly where he considers the intersection of compliance and sexual harassment. We note the Astros come home tied one-to-one with the Dodgers. We highlight the podcast from my monthly series this month, a one month to a more effective compliance program where we're focusing on one month to more effective compliance for business ventures. We hit some of the highlights of the Everything Compliance Episode 20 podcast, which was recorded live at SCCE 2017. Eric Feldman's coming through Houston next week to speak at Gerber. If you're in Houston, I hope you will join us. And finally, Jay uh, Mia Culpa's Uh, getting out his overdue weekend report, so we have that to look forward to. The This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, back with my friend and colleague Jay Rosen for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 74 for the week ending October 27th, 2017, the Coming Home Tide edition. As the Astros return to Houston for games three, four, and five of the 2017 World Series, tied with the Los Angeles Dodgers one to one. Jay, we are on uh, pretty much a no sleep uh, buzz high here in Houston. Uh, how are things in Southern California? Well, you know, things in Southern California are always just a little bit more mellow. Um, I'm thinking game two was a, a b- bump in the road, and uh, everyone here is uh, definitely expecting a game six. Well, uh, I have to say I'm expecting a game six, but uh, if we can close it out in Houston, uh, uh, I've told my wife uh, we will not be sleeping this weekend, and our hearts may or may not be functioning, but uh, we're going to give it a shot. So uh, pretty exciting times, and um for those who have uh, been supporting teams that uh, went a long time between World Series wins, I'm beginning to understand what you went through. So with that, Thank you, uh, yes, <laughs> I had a lot of comments from uh, from Red Sox fans and uh, the end of Game Two. So they just said, uh, "Enjoy the ride." So I'm enjoying it. Um, but uh, we had a lot of general anti-corruption news this week, Jay. So maybe we should uh, just jump right into that. Uh, We started off on Sunday, I believe, with a very interesting blog post by Wei Chen on her site, Wei Chen Ethics, where she weighed in on ISO 37001. And as you know, Jay, I am um, not a fan of the uh, standard 
And we've talked about that on a prior podcast, but obviously Wei Chen uh, comes in with a um, former DOJ prosecutorial angle, former uh, compliance officer uh, in uh, corporate uh, America angle. So she has a lot of weight and authority. And uh, she had some, I thought, some pretty searing critiques of uh, 3701. And uh, I think two days later in the FCPA blog, Christy Hart Grant um, also uh, responded with uh, her comments. Christy is a fan of the uh, standard, I think, as everyone knows. And she, um, that's Christy Grant Hart, I'm sorry. Uh, She um, uh, published, uh, I would say it was intended to be a rejoinder, but I really don't think it answered the questions that Wei Chen raised. And then Henry Cutter uh, over at the uh, Risk and Compliance Journal of the uh, Risk and Compliance over at the Wall Street Journal, uh, kind of summarized both positions, uh, and and uh, I found it to be a very interesting um, kind of dialogue back and forth. So, uh, you want to just uh, give us your thoughts on that, Jay? Yeah, well, I, I kind of tried to do a a four quadrant approach upon uh, from which uh, angle everyone's coming, and Way seems to be talking more about. Um, uh, a distinct lack of supporting data on how 37001 is going to be different than any other standard that's out there because it seems to be lacking the data. Um, in, in Christie's article, uh, she agreed with the fact that there's not enough data, but she said that the uh, you know the ISO 37001 is definitely based on best practices, and it is true that it's all your accreditation is only going to be as good as that, a party who's approving it. Um, Cutter lined up two things, uh, you know, basically uh, each side going against each other. And what I thought was interesting, Tom, is that you included an article that you wrote back in um, February of this past year. And uh, it was, uh, I was glad to hear that your perspective hadn't changed, but the way that you took a look at it was it was all about doing the compliance. And I think if you take those four different points of view, we all want the same thing. We all want a standard that's meaningful, that companies can follow, and that will prevent corruption and prevent bribery. So it's it's not that we're so far apart. We all want the same things. I just think that there's different ways of getting there. And um, one of the art, one of the points that came out about the ISO 37001 is that it is such a new standard that it is an absolute truth that there is not any uh, corroborating data out there. So if we can, you know, go out and look out into the marketplace a year, a year and a half from now, um, hopefully there is some data. I'm not quite sure if the um, syllogism that Wei uses between 37001 and, you know, World Health Organization standard that has um, a desired effect. I I understand conceptually where she goes from, but I think that might be, um, you know, some of the confusion too. So uh, I don't know if what I said means anything, but that's... uh, that's the way I kind of uh, placed it in its own four-quadrant approach. 
So one of the things I think uh, uh, arguments raised by Wei Chen was to take a more rigorous uh, look at uh, measuring the results of uh, the standard. And so on one hand, if you uh, become 37001 certified and you hadn't engaged in bribery and corruption before and you don't engage in bribery and corruption going forward, is that a result of receiving the certification? Is that a result of the uh, actual individual prongs of the standard being followed? Uh, or is it just that your company doesn't engage in bribery and corruption? Uh, kind of one issue uh, but the other issue that is there is a fairly uh, or some amount of data on the effects of compliance programs on uh, profitability. And certainly leading that uh, discussion would be uh, Ethisphere and their annual World's Most Ethical Company Awards, which they now have a body of 15 years of data and showed the financial returns of companies that have won the award have consistently been higher on average than the uh, standard Poor's 500. But there's also been some academic work to look at um, uh, the effects of internal controls and anti-corruption programs. Um, so there is some data out there. Uh, I think we uh, are, uh, the compliance community may be struggling with a way to define uh, what generally has been viewed as, if not legalistic, or more qualitative uh, approaches to compliance. So I certainly applaud that discussion going forward. The, um, the other two points um, Wei Chen raised are um, things that I think I discussed back in February, but I think they bear repeating, Jay, and that's uh, who's going to do the uh, certification. If it's Christy Grant Hart, uh, frankly, I have a high, high degree of comfort uh, that she will um, uh, do an uh, adequate or to excellent job on uh, performing a uh, certification, uh, no matter what the standards are. I know her. I know her work. I've read her books. Uh, I believe she knows what she's doing. You know, if it's Joe's Crab Shack out there uh, certifying 37001, I have less confidence. So the who question, I think, is important. The how question is uh, equally important. Um, the... The why question, that really goes to one other point that I don't think either of these commentators really touched on, Jay. Um, although Wei Chen talked about the Department of Justice would not outsource its responsibility to determine whether a compliance program was effective. But um, the uh, result of receiving a certification uh, will, would certainly be viewed by the company that receives it as positive. But for the company who contracts with them to be an agent, who contracts with them to be a subcontractor, who enters into uh, discussions to become a joint venture partner, to enters into discussions uh, to, to merge or, or acquire. Um, if they uh, accept the 37001 on, on, simply on face value, if a company has that certification and the company, the counterparty does not perform their own independent investigation and uh, something happens, um, the counterparty company really has no defense uh, because relying on a company's 37001 certification is no more effective than relying, relying on a company's trace certification, as we found out with Unoil. So um, the kind of why question, I think, for me, turns into a question about the, the 
business role, the business effect of having a 37001 certification. And if you're sitting across the table from a company who has a certification, uh, no matter what the reason they got it for, whether it's a PR exercise or uh, exercise to really uh, take a look at the robustness of their compliance program, um, I think you still have to have your own independent assessment. And that's really where companies, counter counterparty companies in the business world need to tread very, very carefully. So, uh, but the debate continues and um, good to see uh, kind of both sides this way. Kudos to Henry for kind of writing up uh, both sides and we'll have to see where that goes. Um, Jay? Yeah, I guess I, I, I would just want to throw one last thing in that uh, I believe we got from our, our good uh, friend, President Reagan, trust but verify, correct? So, even if somebody came and said they had the 37001, you would be remiss if you were considering a deal or an acquisition and didn't do your own due diligence. So I don't think it claims to take uh, away the part or the uh, onus of the party from doing diligence. It's just another choice that they've chosen that the company has said, all right, well, I'm going to use as my anti-corruption standard 37001, but I could use the 10 hallmarks or I could use, you know, there, I think we should be happy as a community that people are trying to use standards at, at which to benchmark their operations to make sure that they are doing everything they can to uh, combat cor corruption. So I think, uh, you know, that, that, that's another way to look at it. I don't think anybody's looking just to spend 30 or 40 or $50,000 just to get, um, you know, a logo next to their name. But I think they would like some uh, actual benefit to accrue from the exercise. Right. So, Jay, you picked up on a uh, recent speech by uh, Assistant Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, where uh, I think he's going to talked about the DOJ's convened a working group to boost corporate cooperation with the department. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So this uh, past Wednesday, the uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, gave the morning keynote address at the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform. And, um, you know, over the past several years, the uh, Chamber has been um, arguing for uh, both uh, compliance defense and trying to uh, – you know, just change the um, anti-corruption, um, you know, laws that are out there that the business community has to respond to. In the past, they've said that it puts U.S. companies at a considerable disadvantage. And um, the uh, the DAG gave some very interesting comments. And uh, what was interesting from my perspective is he really took a, a good view of what is out there in terms of uh, – what do these regulations mean for people who are doing business? And he, uh, first of all, at the beginning, quoted uh, President Calvin Coolidge, who in 1925 famously declared that the chief business of the American people is business. And he likened uh, the setup in the DOJ that if uh, he, the deputy attorney general, was the chief operating officer, then the AG, Jeff Sessions, would be considered at the CEO. And that they have a certain budget and a certain responsibility, but one of the things that they even have to respond to 
is uncertainty in the marketplace. And that's a lot of the times what we talk about in terms of how companies are going to respond to anti-corruption, what they're going to do. And there's uncertainty as into what your foreign uh, counterparties are going to be doing, uncertainties to what the U.S. government is going to be doing. And, um, you know, he, he argued that, uh, what they're trying to do is collect everything that's out there. So all the memos, um, all the guidance, and what they'd like to do is really uh, compile it into one place. And at the same time, um, the DAG said that he's more of the mind that why take three sentences to say something when you can take one. So the, the remarks are pretty clear. I don't think it leaves anything um, – to question, I think what we need to see as a compliance community is uh, what they come back with. And I believe the president has said that for every new uh, law that he wants to pass, he'd like to see two taken off the books. So we'll have to see how much we lose when that uh, process goes through. But in the whole, um, I think it's um, you know remarks that would be uh, appreciated by both the anti-corruption and the business community. What, what are your thoughts, Tom? So one uh, small point, Jay, he didn't say for every law that's passed, he wanted two repealed. He said for every regulation passed uh, because the laws are passed okay. by Congress and that would presuppose Congress could do anything. So um, it's not laws, it's regulation. That, that is a big error on my part. I apologize. <laughs> right. So the, um, uh, the regulations, of course, uh, come from the regulatory bodies. In the uh, FCPA world, it's actually primarily the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission issues regulations. So um, the uh, I guess uh, that real part of the speech uh, just seemed to me to be pandering to the uh, Chamber of Commerce. Um, but the part that it, uh, really uh, got my attention was about the, um, the memos and the uh, consolidation of memos and really the uh, tacit approval of the AIDS memo. Uh, now, of course, uh, you, it wouldn't surprise us that uh, uh, Sessions would want the uh, Yates memo redone simply to take Sally Yates' name off of it uh, because she had the temerity to stand up to the president. Uh, but um, the Yates memo said we are going to prosecute individuals in appropriate circumstances, uh, when they, i.e. when they break the law. Uh, what we have seen since the release of the Yates memo in September 2017, at least in the FCPA world, is not a large increase in that. So um, I think that uh, Rosenstein um, certainly is going to bring forward the concepts of the Yates memo. Uh, the individual prosecution of a culpable individuals would be consistent, I think, with DOJ, at least philosophy over the past 15 years. The uh points in the Yates memo around uh, credit, uh, I think were uh, part of the FCPA pilot program from April 2016. Uh, I see those uh, moving forward. Uh, if they will grant greater um, uh, credit to companies, uh, that could be done internally by the Department of Justice. The adding of a compliance defense, i.e. the amendment of the FCPA, that would require congressional approval, and that gets us back to the point where um, the current Congress can't seem to do anything. So I really doubt that they would move to having a compliance defense, but you certainly could see 
um, co really consistent with DOJ policy, giving credit for companies who uh, have a existing robust compliance program, who do self-disclose, who do uh, uh, cooperate extensively in the investigation, who do remediate. Uh, we have had uh, numerous uh, declinations granted this uh, this year, this calendar year, and I find those declinations to be fully consistent with existing DOJ policy and, frankly, con uh, consistent with what Rosenstein said uh, he would like to see going forward. Um, the, we've had declinations with disgorgement. Um, I think we had two in June, and uh, that's certainly consistent with the FCPA pilot program, and uh, we could see that going forward as well. So um, I saw, I, I really saw, once again, except for the uh, pandering, uh, I mean, maybe that's consistent too, uh, that the uh, DOJ panders to the uh, Chamber of Commerce when they get in front of them, um, just like they would to any other constituency. But uh, the comments around the um, policymaking would, uh, in the, at least in the FCPA world, really be uh, maybe clarification, but certainly uh, one could see almost a straight line from as far back as 2008 um, with uh, 0408, uh, excuse me, 0804, and um, the opinion release and coming forward um excuse me, 0402, opinion release coming forward about what the DOJ expects companies to have in terms of a robust uh, compliance program and giving appropriate credit. The, remember, the pilot program uh, only put in writing what the DOJ was doing because if you look at the HP and the Parker Drilling uh, FCPA uh, enforcement actions, the companies received significant credit below the minimum sentencing guidelines because of the uh, extensive remediation they engaged in, the extensive cooperation, uh, even though um, neither company itself disclosed. So the DOJ was already giving credit to companies uh, really below the uh, minimum suggested range of the sentencing guideline. Uh, but if the DOJ can put kind of all of these things in one memo, that's certainly going to help the compliance community. Anything which would clarify or give us information about the Department of Justice's thinking of how they would prosecute a case is, I think, a welcome addition. And uh, I would be uh, quite interested to see what they come up with. And if they're going to really implement the, uh, the political philosophy or at least the, the prosecutorial philosophy behind the Yates memo of going after individuals uh, rather than corporations, um, I think that that's something the DOJ said they wanted to do and will do uh, going forward. Yeah, there also, also to add to that point, I believe there was some questioning yesterday of uh, potential new representatives to be uh, SEC, is it commissioners? Yes. And they were being asked specifically those questions, uh, you know, in light of our, our favorite book, The Chicken Shit Club, and, and would they be uh, willing to go after uh, individual um, individuals as opposed to uh, corporations? So that is still going to be, um, you know, an idea that's out there, and uh, it, it's something that we are all interested in, in the answer for. Um, next up on our list, Tom, um, our good friend Ben DiPietro at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Report takes a look at compliance contagion. And what does he have to say about that? Well, uh, compliance contagion is a really interesting concept that um, uh, 
deals with the following, Jay, which is if you are in an industry uh, where a very large negative reputational event occurs, uh, that that event could bleed over to you. So I really noticed this back in the um, Volkswagen scandal because in Germany, uh, it damaged the German national brand of quality. So other German automakers uh, were not able to uh, or, or were negatively impacted. And I recall the uh, the head, uh, the president of the German manufacturers, steel manufacturers trade association, association said, first of all, it's not fair. Uh, we shouldn't be t- uh, everybody painted with the same brush as Volkswagen. Um, and fair or not really doesn't come into the matter. But what intrigued me more was his second point. He says that the response, the answer, the protection you have is transparency and transparency and compliance. So he was identifying two key components of, uh, of a corporate compliance program. One is to have one and two, to be transparent so that you can show it's working if and when uh, such an event occurs. But uh, the, the one that uh, really you can name the scandal, whether and even think about Harvey Weinstein, uh, that is really um, across multiple industries uh, in terms of uh, sexual harassment by uh, uh, members of senior management. But the other scandal that is uh, certainly uh, contagion right now is the Kobe Steel scandal in Japan, because uh, one of the key marketing points for Japanese steel was simply that it was, if not the best, one of the best in the world. And compared to China, it was certainly much better than Chinese steel. And so made in Japan was supposed to be a indicia of quality. And now we have the situation where uh not only is there no indicia of quality, uh, we have falsified certification records, and that negatively impacts every company that used Kobe steel products across the globe. And what happens if you're a Japanese steel manufacturer? Are you now going to be uh, called into account as well? So um, I was uh, really glad that Ben wrote that article. It's something that uh, I've been uh, seeing for some time, and the response is the protection you have as a company is that you have a robust compliance program, that you have an ethical culture, and that, that all of that is transparent. So if if we looked at Harvey Weinstein, uh, you're, you could say your senior management had not engaged in sexual harassment. They had not, the board had not approved multiple settlements uh, of multi-million dollars, or in the case of Fox News, a $32 million settlement for Bill O'Reilly some few months before uh, he signs a, a new contract with the company. Um, it's, um, um, I think, something that companies are going to have to face. In the FCPA world, if we drill down a little bit there, Jay, it led to things called industry sweeps, where uh, companies in one industry, such as energy, uh, the DOJ, went and swept through them and found multiple FCPA violations. That then happened in pharmaceutical and tech. Uh, we've had uh, country sweeps. Uh, certainly, uh, Brazil is uh, foremost among those uh, countries where U.S. companies doing business in Brazil have uh, uh, found themselves under FCPA scrutiny because of the acts of their competitors. China is another uh, country. So that type of contagion is, uh, I think, going to become more prevalent, certainly in the uh, uh, social media reality of 2017 going forward. I think uh, another interesting point about the article is it really it runs down a checklist of things for you to consider in terms of whether or not your specific business or area 
is open to uh, crisis contagion. And then they even talk about <clears throat> what your response should be within the media and social media. So it almost gets down to a, a similar situation that there's always that FCPA calculus about, you know, does it make sense to, um, you know, to, um, to ap- approach the government and tell them what you've got or do you, is it an isolated incident? So there's always some type of calculus at work in terms of when you disclose and when you don't. So that's also another interesting part of that article. Um, next up is uh, we've got an article from Global Investigations Review, and it's talking about how IBM is using big data and FCPA compliance. And um, this is one instance on some uh, technology that IBM built for themselves. And another instance is using uh, their uh, mastermind computer, Watson. But um, IBM has been deploying machine learning to vast reams of data available to the company to spy red flags. And one example they gave gave is that they were able to uh, provide a scenario of an employee who racked up $500 in taxi and $400 in restaurant expenses in uh, on a trip to Vegas. So at that point, that would generate a couple red flags, and then they would be able to have historical information on the employee, and plus they would also be able to benchmark against other employees in IBM who had taken similar customers uh, to Las Vegas. So that's, uh, you know, one way that they can scan the data, but then they also have learning tools that also allow them to analyze unstructured data. And, um, you know, basically the example that was given was the tool could spot how the employee was talking to a client and a government official who also was in Las Vegas at the same time. So basically the computer had gone through all the big data and found a noise pattern that would require uh, further um, looking into. So um, these are concepts that we've heard about tangentially in the marketplace about um, how to use AI. And I believe at one conference uh, or one session I was at, at the conference last week in Vegas, they actually talked about the potential for delivering just-in-time FCPA me- uh, messaging. So if you were booking with your travel company and you were booking uh, a Vegas trip and it was in conjunction with a certain um, conference, that you could get delivered three uh, messages and one saying, you know, Hope you have a successful trip to Vegas. Uh, please recall that you have certain gift and entertainment limits within your budget and respect them. And, uh, you know, numbers three, have a safe trip. So uh, this is um, a, a little bit uh, of Big Brother combining with red flags and, again, giving companies uh, more guidance on where to look for uh, potential trouble. So Patrick Taylor, the CEO of Oversight Systems, calls this finding patterns in raked leaves. And I certainly think uh, that it's going to be the wave of the future. Um, Absolutely agree that you can deliver a uh, just-in-time FCPA message uh, exactly uh, really as 
as you've detailed. I've, I've thought about that. I've written about that. I've talked about that. And the more information you can get more quickly uh, in real real time even, that gives you the article, uh, the opportunity to maybe nip something in the bud before it goes from a code of conduct or compliance or corporate policy violation to a full-blown FCPA violation. So a very interesting article and uh, certainly I think uh, one of the ways of the future, Jay. So now we've got uh, another tool that's been uh, introduced to the marketplace from Transparency International's uh, United Kingdom branch. Do you want to speak about that? Yeah. uh, TIUK has put up together a very, very, very good resource on um, their uh, kind of uh, thoughts on best practices for a compliance program. It's uh, guidance. It puts together international best practices. It's a tool that they've been working on for some time. It incorporates uh, thinking around the UK Bribery Act, the FCPA, ISO 3701, and it's it's a pretty cool tool. I've checked it out. Uh, They've got um, a series of categories that you can get not only uh, information about what goes in each category, but also some uh, formats you can use. So uh, kudos to uh, TIUK for putting it together. We've linked to an article Um, written by Rory Donaldson of TIUK that he wrote for FCPA blog. And in that article, it links to the new tool. So if you want to check it out, uh, I would urge you to do so. And what's on Matt Kelly's mind this week? Well, uh, one of the things that was on his mind is on what's been on the mind of lots of us, including myself, Jay, and you, which is the Harvey Weinstein scandal. And it continues to reverberate. Uh, We hinted about it earlier. Now it's gone really across uh, outside the entertainment industry to other uh, industries uh, as well, where senior management really uh, was engaged in sexual harassment, created a culture which allowed it to flourish. And Matt uh, kind of reviews those, but then takes a look at what, what companies can do. And uh, most interestingly, he cited to the Texas um, uh, Health Resources, which was recently named by Fortune as the best workplace in the United States for women. So, you know, uh, certainly as a Texan, I was proud of that. Stunned that the state of Texas government would do anything positive for women, but uh, still, uh, apparently they're doing so. But here's what they've done, which is um, what I think the Weinstein scandal is going to lead the discussion on. Um, the chief, uh, chief people officer of the Texas Health Resources said that employees are always expected to report harassment when they see it, even if they aren't personally involved. Managers, in turn, must report the allegations to HR. If they don't, then they're part of the problem. And that's what I see as the dynamic change in the conversation around reporting and uh, actually what reporting will be going forward. No longer is it simply the woman who is harassed's responsibility to raise her hand, to go to HR, to um, uh, report the uh, violations. It's now the person who's aware of it. And I think that's a huge sea change. If we can get that change inculcated in corporate America, it will go a long way towards eradicating uh, not only this type of behavior, but frankly, multiple types of illegal or uh, violated nefarious conduct. Um, Because here's the thing, Jay, everybody knows 
you've you've been in the corporate world. Uh, you've been in a variety of different uh, types of corporations. I come out of the law firm world and uh, corporate world in Houston. And in both of the worlds I was in, everybody knew who the harassers are. Everybody who the harassers were. And um, when, uh, but nobody uh, who was not directly affected ever raised their hand and said, this is wrong. This has got to stop. So using the uh, Texas Health Resources as a model, Matt's identified a way that companies can actually move forward on this. So uh, by using uh, complaint it's complaint hotlines to force managers to take sexual harassments seriously. So um, you can tie managers' performance to that. You can tie individual employees' performance to that, and you can really drive a change in behavior. So uh, kudos to Matt for identifying that, and it's something that uh, I'm certainly going to continue to talk about in the uh, compliance community and compliance world as well. He's got a, a great meme in his article, and it's um, – Gary Cole from Office Space, and it says, um, if you could just never speak up at all, uh, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Dilbert so, uh, uh, echo that. Yeah. So next, uh, we've we've spoken about the Astros. You're hopeful about them closing it out at home in Houston. Uh, what's happening on your monthly podcast, Tom? So uh, this month, we are wrapping up uh, the final week of uh, one month, uh, this, this month's one month to a more effective compliance program has been one month to more effective compliance for business ventures. And it's been a really interesting exploration. Uh, this week, we've looked at uh, different types of um, business relationships, franchising, uh, distributors, uh, teaming partners, strategic alliances, and how, because they are different in the business context, you may need a different compliance uh, risk management response. So it's been a, a great uh, exploration sponsored by Mike Volkoff and the Volkoff Law Group. Uh, shout out to us, Jay, because uh, we posted the our first live uh, podcast um, as the formal Everything Compliance Gang. Our first podcast was in uh, SCCE's 2016 CEI, and that really led us to form the Everything Compliance Podcast Gang. But we uh, recorded a podcast uh, at Las Vegas. We had Roy Snell sitting in for Mike Volkoff, who is uh, currently on assignment uh, somewhere. And uh, it was a lot of fun, and I think all of us really enjoyed that podcast in particular. And I got that posted on Thursday, and of course, that's linked to the show notes. And uh, one more thing, Jay. Um, your uh, uh, affiliated, affiliated monitor colleague, Eric Feldman, speaking in Houston next week. So if you're in Houston, uh, check out the Gerber website. That's ghber.org. Eric speak on Thursday, November 2nd. If you'd like some details, it'll be in the show notes. And if you have any questions, you can certainly uh, give me a shout or a call. But uh, we're extraordinarily pleased to have uh, Eric Feldman down here to talk to us about proactive monitoring and how companies can take advantage of that for their compliance program. So uh, last week, uh, we had a hint of a Rosen weekend report. Um, I, I don't know if I didn't get the memo, uh, but I don't recall seeing one. So I was wondering if we might see one this weekend. Yeah, I, th I, th I think I owe everyone last week. So uh, I will try to get that up uh, over the weekend in addition to uh, – Worrying how the Patriots are going to fare without uh, Dante Dante Hightower, and uh, also one of my favorite cousins, Merle, is coming in from Chicago, so she's going to 
get to meet Eminem and Rebecca. So I'm looking forward to a weekend of football and family and um, blog writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Well, Jay, as always, uh, it's been a ton of fun. So you want to take us home this week? I'd love to. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitors, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA for the week ending October 27, 2017. Thanks so much for listening, and have a wonderful weekend. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at Tom Tom Fox, I am Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And you can uh, email Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly FCPA compliance and ethics roundup in the podcast world. Also, I hope you will join us next week when Jay and I return for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.